This episode, you hear from Nat Milliken, Lieutenant Colonel, retired from the Air Force, who was a cargo and tanker pilot and world traveler on active duty, who, uh, after his Air Force career, became a UPS cargo pilot and also a world traveler, and is now uh, training missionary leaders around the planet. Nat humbly discusses an aircraft incident in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, turns out it was a gear-up landing, followed by an emergency crew egress, followed by a massive fireball. Everyone got out okay, but it was very close, and we're thankful that Nat made it. Here you go. Okay. Um, I usually start with a, uh, a uh, the, the typical question that everybody's heard a million times, but I think I'm going to throw you a quick curveball, Nat, and I want want the gang to hear what you the little bit about the trip you just returned from and then kind of the purpose of that and what you were doing okay uh, a curveball i should have expected that <laughs> <laughs> um well i um it's kind of a part of a journey that i started uh about back in 1996 uh, i started mentoring young men and doing leadership training and over the course of about this time I've been here in Louisville, 23 plus years, I've, I've just enjoyed sitting down across from the table from three or four men and talking about things, talking about life, developing life skills. And uh, as I began flying, I realized more and more that, uh, or as I continued my flying career, I realized that what I really enjoyed was uh, leaning into young men and helping them develop their dreams. And Fast forward to uh, August of 2021, I went to Kiev, uh, Ukraine, uh, for August 4th through the 16th, and kind of continued this journey with this nonprofit I started calling, called Unbridled Skies. Uh, we invest in developing leaders in local churches around the world, you know, small to medium-sized churches, churches that don't really have... Uh, the money, you know, the finances to develop in the leadership training. They come out of seminary and they know how to teach a preach a sermon, but they don't know how to interact with their lay people very well. They've added people to their staff and they don't really know how to how to do that. And uh, so we went there, having built relationships over the years with this one pastor that's serving there and actually in the seminary there at Kiev, uh, Ukraine. He asked me to come over and lead a leadership retreat with some of their graduates. So it's about 15 to 20 graduates, 17 or 18, I think, and their families. And then the professors, the staff of the uh, Kiev Theological Seminary um, and some different supervisors. We all gathered together, about 70, 80 of us. Uh, we went to Kiev, first of all, and then went down to Odessa, uh, Ukraine. Go ahead. Yeah. On the beach, yeah. On the beach, yeah, on the Black Sea. Uh, and I was so busy, I never got to step, tip my toe in it. I, that's frustrating. But at any rate, uh, we were there for a good bit of time. I spoke two times a day, and then I had counseling sessions in the afternoon, just talking with guys about their life. We talked about authority, integrity, vision, shepherding, and um, communication. And in each case, I just found out that what what these young men were having difficulty do is they were having difficulty saying no. Hmm. They're having difficulty saying no to everything that they were asked to do. So 
I try to help them reevaluate their lives a little bit, come up with, okay, you're lying in your coffin. I said, work with me here. I know you're dead. You can't think, but you're lying in your coffin. You look back on your life and you think, what would I like for my life to have accomplished? Now you start living your life in reverse and try to build that legacy because you have to do it. A lot of people have dreams, but nobody sits down and writes down the steps they need to attain them. If you want to be a doctor, okay, you have to do this, this, and this. You got to design them out. So if you want to be a pastor, you want to lead a church, you want to be effective, there's some things that you need to do. Let's talk about them. And they they begin to realize that as, you know, as I was even, as I would, one of the things I would say to this entering class at the academy is, uh, you know, most people don't achieve their goals because they do second things first and they don't build their lives with purpose. And these folks, these pastors, they were just exhausted, John. They were just, <clears throat> they were yeah. working 24 seven, doing everything they thought that was really important. And they, they were forgetting the thing that we get told every time when we get on an airplane, we're flying in the back and you know, we don't fly the airplane anymore. <clears throat> All of us are too old. <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. yeah. But uh, we'll fly it. Excuse me a second. Go ahead. <laughs> Get a drink of coffee. Um, the flight attendant tells us when the oxygen masks fall and you have loved ones all around you, who do you put the mask on first? Yourself. You put it on yourself because you need to be healthy enough to take care of those around you. And that's what these pastors weren't doing. That's what most leaders do. A lot of times we don't take care of ourselves. We don't, we don't do our discipline, self-improvement that we need. We don't do our self-fitness, you know, our fitness programs. We are always running. We're always saying yes to everything. And in reality, what happens is we don't, we don't get to the best because we're always working on the good. And I asked them, uh, I said, look, what, what do you think about this question? Do you think there's enough time in the day to do everything God wants you to do? Of course, they all thought it was a trick question. So, <laughs> no, of course not. We can't, we can't do everything God wants to do. It's impossible. I say, in reality, the answer to that question is yes, there is. But in order to do that, you're going to have to say no, say no to some good stuff. And guess what? You're going to make people mad. Yeah. You're going to disappoint people. But you have to determine what your life is about and what you want to focus on. And uh, I'm sure in every profession, you know, you uh, you went to the Navy. You didn't go into the Air Force. I'm sure you frustrated people by doing that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I made decisions to go to a, I went to a C-141 at Charleston. And my uh, my instructor pilot was a was a frustrated fighter pilot who didn't get to fly when he flew a C-130, so he couldn't believe that I didn't want to go fly a fighter since I was fighter qualified. Well, I didn't want to. Yeah. And uh, I knew that wasn't for me. And uh, so you have to be true to what you, you know, the goals you set for yourself. And these uh, young pastors there in, in Ukraine, they just sat and they looked at me and they just said, wow, we never thought of it like that. I mean, I'm supposed to design my life to honor the Lord, and that might mean that I'm going to have to disappoint people, really? Yeah, it is. But Interesting. You have, to focus, you have to focus your life on that which matters, and each of our, each of our priorities are going to be a little bit differently, aren't they? Oh I mean, yeah. You're, you're so different than mine. I mean, you're you're living in the Northwest, and I'm living in the Midwest. I never thought I'd be living in Louisville, Kentucky. I've lived here more than I have anywhere else in my life. 
Never well, been to Kentucky until I, uh, except for Bowling Green, to go to Fort <laughs> Campbell to get my phys- medical physicals for the Air Force Academy. So, so let's uh, let's uh, jump in now and <clears throat> and add. Do you have any uh, other than the great message you just provided? Do you have additional stuff for people thinking about going to the academy and and uh, current current cadets, recent grads, and and folks like that? I would say uh, to them, get a map of the minefield ahead of you. Talk to people that have been through it before. I mean, you read all the literature you want, but uh, the minds get moved around. Somebody who has just done it is the one you really need to talk to as much as you can. Uh, find out, you know, what the challenges are going to be ahead. Prepare as best you can. I mean, you know it's high elevation, so one mile up there is going to equal about two or two or three down where you are. And uh, so get ready. Uh, that's the best I can say, really, is just to get ready. And uh, be respectful, be responsible, and get ready. And uh, be true to your convictions that you have. Set them for yourself clearly. And uh, recognize the difference between your convictions and your preferences, that which you will not do or you would die to prevent doing it. Those are your convictions. Your preferences are things that you'd rather not do. So you've got to obey lawful orders, but you need to understand what a lawful order is. So you got to have knowledge. You got to find out what's appropriate, you know, for what your authority would ask you to do. Go ahead. No, these are all great, great messages. I, I, that begs me to ask you what, what got you to the Academy in the first place? What, what did you have? Where, you know, how'd you grow up? All that kind of stuff. Uh, my dad was uh, 20 years in the Air Force as enlisted, and he was a C-130 pilot. So did you C- grow up in the Air Force? C-130 uh, flight engineer, so uh, pardon me? Did you grow up uh, uh, on different bases and stuff? Yeah, I moved around. He was in for 20 years, so we moved all over. Uh, and I guess the standard comment, the worst thing about Growing up with a parent in the Air Force or in the military is that you moved around a lot. And the best thing about growing up with a parent in the Air Force is that you moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of have to look at it that way. And that's the way my kids look at it, too, spending 20 years also. But my dad being enlisted, he always told me, Nat, nobody's going to call you Nat. They're all going to call you Milliken. Well, that's the difference, you know, in the officer and enlisted. It didn't turn out that way. I've always been called Nat. And, uh, but I remember one day I came home from the Air Force Academy. I was a, it was my first year. It was a Thanksgiving and I got to come home to Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we're all in a big kitchen there. Not big kitchen, the kitchen's pretty small. But uh, uh, my dad asked, asked me in front of all my friends there, he says, so now what rank are you at the Air Force Academy? And I said, well, really, we don't have a rank. They, they kind of talk about it as a third lieutenant, but the rank doesn't really exist. So we're somewhere between a chief master sergeant and a warrant officer or a second lieutenant. And I've been at the Air Force Academy for three months, and I already outrank you, and you were in for 20 years. Ooh. <laughs> and I looked at my dad's face, and I thought, as, it, as the words came out of my mouth, Ooh. I, I cannot believe. I didn't mean it the way it sounded, but it, 
I saw his face and he, the, the way his face changed, he, he didn't get mad. He just got humiliated. Yeah. It, it, I, I had a situation like that. My dad, when uh, I was in grad school, but we'll, we'll save that for some other time. <laughs> but he, he just kind of turns, Oh, okay. And walk, walked away. And I just, I think I grew up 20 years in that moment. And wow. uh, I remember 20 years later, I was standing in front of a, squadron i was a squadron commander and i looked out there and in every one of those seats i felt like i saw my dad i never forgot that moment and it was i always maintained uh i I think i just because of that totally embarrassing prideful moment i i remembered that people like my dad were out there and they had families and they they cared about their families and they were working hard trying to do the right thing they were going to make mistakes but, you know, a staff sergeant was an important person in the unit, just as important as the pilot, just as yeah. important as the, as the navigator, weapon systems officer. They were all just as important. And uh, it was helpful to me to have that have made that mistake. Uh, yeah, the, and I guess that's, yeah I, I learned pretty early on that the guys working on your planes can kill you if you don't treat them right. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there is no there's no unimportant person in that process of operating a an airplane there just isn't from the from the lunches to uh to the oil to the gas to i mean the 747 taken off out of afghanistan i think it was that the the trucks came in loose and went to the back of the airplane the cg was off and it went straight up and came right back down on his tail and killed everybody mm-hmm. there's not an unimportant role uh in operating anything that operates in the air the only good thing about aviation is we have a perfect record we've never lost we've never left one up there <laughs> okay they yeah all, they all come down <laughs> that, that third dimension is pretty serious <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as an air force brat i gotta ask you what did you have any favorite places you lived growing up um i would think coming right back to tennessee each time we my dad retired at Smyrna Air Force Base, which, or actually Seward, Seward Air Force Base. It was in Smyrna, Tennessee. He retired there. I, I um, enjoyed living in that middle Tennessee area more than anywhere else. Uh, I, I moved around a good bit, but those, those, we always came back to that one place. Did you do uh, anything overseas? No, no. My dad was uh, an airlift guy, so he, uh, he flew overseas a lot, but I never moved overseas. We were okay. always stateside. That's 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 pretty special. And I know in my case, we we bounced around the continents a few times. Um, So you got into the Air Force Academy. Why? Why did you decide to go there? Well, my dad inspired me towards it. Uh, I wanted to fly. Uh, There's absolutely absolutely no reason why I was smart enough to go. Um, I uh, I had like a three point nine five grade point average in high school i i never got i mean i was number five in my class uh but i graduated from the air force academy with a 2.57 grade point average and i was happy to get out of there <laughs> well you did a hell of a lot better than i did in both no, no, I'm not, I'm not a hell of a lot better you wouldn't have been graduating <laughs> no you yeah you, you your grade point was way up above mine on that one you but know, it's, it's just you know academics um I think I would have studied better had I been more mature, but I was an only child and it was a, 
I grew up a lot in that first year. I actually was in the Dula Squadron, 27th Squadron. So you caught my caught my ear when you when you said the lady was wearing a 27th jersey. Yeah. Uh, T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, I decided in my um, in my first year at the Air Force Academy, the 27th Squadron, I was ranked in the bottom of my class. And uh, I was militarily, and I was I had a 3.0 grade point average, so I was on the dean's dean's list for both semesters. And I was on the probably the commandant's watch list. <laughs> but uh, but in the uh, the next three years, I was on the commandant's list, ranked in you know the higher part of my class in leadership. And I was I never reached the 3.0 plateau in my academics again. But I decided during my my freshman, my, you know, my duly second class or third class year that I was going to be me. When I went to that new squadron, the 36th squadron, I was going to be me. I was going to stop trying to please everyone else. I had determined that it had pretty much proven itself. There is no formula for success, but there is a formula for failure. And that is try to please everyone. And that is what I tried to do my first year there. I tried to be everything to everyone. And I wasn't capable of pleasing anybody as a result. And I just decided, okay, look, come what may, I'm going to be me. I'm just a poor young guy from Middle Tennessee that works hard. I'm not smart enough probably to get an A because I can't learn that fast. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah. 24 semester hours a semester, I just wasn't that smart. I, I agree. You, you were you. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, just, I really admired Nat Milliken for being himself. I mean, there was no – there was no – kidding around so what is what was your first uh experience that the or first memory of the pink panthers being a little different than than anything else spirit um there was a spirit and uniqueness about um i mean even the little pink panther himself he had a he was colorful uh he had a great personality uh, but he always seemed to kind of do the right thing, or the right thing seemed to have happened, even though he didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he seemed to seem to be that way. But we, uh, I think we kind of banded together, and uh, you're a team. You kind of help each other. You share. We became kind of a family unit, if you will, sort of a, a mission family. Uh, we had a mission we were doing. We we're kind of taking care of each other, and uh, when somebody was. A little slower along the way we we helped them and we paid attention to the needs of, of folks around us and we kind of i think bonded fairly early uh, of course there was competition and things like that because the academy kind of emphasized that made sure it was there so i don't think we always did the right we didn't always do the right thing but we it was sort of like a gps you put in a destination destination was graduation and when you uh Actually, it was even farther than that. Yeah. Right. But uh, we, uh, when you get off on the wrong road, when you make the wrong decision, what does the GPS do? Rerouting, rerouting. <laughs> and our heart, our heart was always in, in the right place. And uh, I think you just kept, kept churning. You kept working. You kept trying to do the next thing well. And that kind of comes around to the story later if we get to it. Uh, so, so one of the things that I know we had to be rerouted a few times. Um, some of the yeah. antics, some of the antics we did. Do you remember the uh, air gardens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell everybody what we did there? 
Oh man, I try to forget some of those things. I don't even remember. I, I, I think I went through it a few times with no clothes on. Yeah, we skinny dipping in the air gardens, folks. That that yeah. was the thing. That was the thing in the seventies. <laughs> I'm not really sure if I skinny dipped. I hate cold water, so I doubt that I did that. But I'm well, I think it was only ankle deep. But we we wanted we wanted to do something. We wanted to do something out there. No, nobody's getting too deep into that place. <laughs> I, I think I I think I left my imprints on the. Uh, on the command post window. No, oh, yeah, but, we all. I think well, all not with my hand, but with the other end. <laughs> it took and off running. I remember hiding in a in a an underclassman's closet one time. What was that for? So I am. I was naked, and uh, <laughs> I'd been streaking, and uh, and and the uh, whatever the security, the cadet people, you know, they. I forgot what we called them, but they they saw us. They were running after us, and I ducked in this underclassman's room not even in my squadron in our squadron and uh he says, look can i hop in here yeah yeah, yeah hop in here. <laughs> thankfully they didn't ask him if i was in there of course because they'd have to told on me so uh, yeah they, they just kept going but uh no, i think i think the I big the big the big message is not that we were doing screwball things but we had to have pressure relief because of the stress of the academy and everything yeah. we did we tried to have a sense of humor about it and and uh and a good spirit about it like you were saying Mm-hmm. The one thing I thought was most impressive, and and you don't have to get into this too much if you don't want to, but you you and Jimmy Doe with the atomic sit up routine was fantastic. Really? Yeah, because it it set the tone for the academic year for the new uh, third third class coming in. Yeah, it it was it was an icebreaker for these kid these kids who were showing up at our squad and they didn't know what what to expect. And we'd get the 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 ready room, the whole squadron assembly room, all filled with all the excited new uh, sophomores. No, no freshmen, no duallys were involved in this. This was an upper class situation only. And we would kind of lay the law that we're going to try to do our best in intramurals and have the most spirit and to, to prepare you for the intramural thing. You know, we want to see who's got the got the the strength and the capability and then jimmy and nat would do this atomic setup thing was the funniest thing ever it was it was outstanding (laughs) i don't remember who we got for it but yeah you could only do it once uh once a year and it was really really impressive well i uh you'll have to tell me about that more because i don't remember that i guess guess i've slept since then i got a picture at nat unfortunately more than likely that was a jimmy doeism because he was he was uh a mastermind and and being underestimated he was always a whole lot more than you realized <laughs> yes he i just i finished talking to him the other day he's he's got some pretty funny stuff um well then uh the the next deal is probably what uh, did you ever get to go to palmdale <laughs> i guess that answers that huh yeah i went twice uh i um the second one i met well, I've forgotten her name, obviously. I probably should since I've been married to my wife for 43 years. Uh, I, uh, 42, not 43. And, uh, yeah, I, I did. I, I remember we came, Jimmy Doe and I were coming back from uh, Palmdale one time in my Formula 400 Firebird coming through Nevada. And uh, I think we were probably doing about 120, something like oh. that. We were going, we we're going as fast as that thing would go. And we'd been going that for a while because we hadn't seen anybody. And uh, then finally we saw a light in a house. We thought, oh, I guess maybe we ought to slow down. So I think I, I slowed down to like about 100 or 110. Or it was, it was, we were still booking it. 
And about the time I slowed down a little bit, this car passed us and the lights came on. Uh-oh. And, and we got pulled over by this guy. And, of course, one of the – I mean, he's in Nevada. I, I didn't expect the Nevada Police Department to say, you're in a heap of trouble, boy. I figured maybe Alabama, but not Nevada. <laughs> but he, but he, sure enough, he says, follow me. So we followed him to this podunk town in the middle of where I can't even remember where it was. This guy at the back of this house, and um, he knocked on the door. Hey, Jake, I got got a couple of guys here. You need to open the court for. So, so we went in that house, and we went into one of his back rooms. We made it into some kind of little podunk courtroom. He he put his put a robe on. I think it might have it might have been a shower robe. I'm not really sure what it was, but he sat down behind a desk and he says, "Okay, that'll be uh, two hundred twenty dollars cash." And <laughs> wow! He's just man, I don't have any. I don't have two hundred. I'm a cadet at the Air Force camp. I'd be lucky if I have thirty dollars in my pocket. And uh, I said, "Well, we we I think between the two of us, we got a hundred. I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy. I for, I kind of forget who it was. I think it's Jimmy." We had about $100, $150, some $120 between the two of us. And, uh, well, that's not going to be enough. We, You want us to write the check for the rest of it? He said, no, no, don't want you to write no check. Just give us the money. Get out of here. Slow down. That ticket never showed up on my record. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course not. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Good old, good old boy. He... Uh, I think he was caught off guard by us being two Air Force Academy cadets, so that he, in some re- some respect, kind of regretted slowing us down. Except we we're probably going to kill ourselves if he hadn't. So um, he told us to slow down, and we did. So we we kept it below a hundred. I can't say we did the speed limit, but uh, <laughs> it did teach us something that day to just kind of be respectful. The fact that we had been respectful was i think probably saved us we weren't being responsible and we certainly weren't ready but i try to teach the three r's a lot to a lot of these guys being responsible respectful and ready and uh, we were respectful and it helped us a great deal (laughs) well don't forget the fourth r what's that don't repeat what i did (laughs) (laughs) don't repeat make mistakes make them early but just don't yeah just make your own path man don't do what i did Uh, and I and I I thought one of the more, more the more memorable spring breaks I ever did was uh, you were part of half of it. Really? Yeah. When we tried to go to Hawaii that time, do you remember that? Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! What a pain in the butt that was. How <laughs> much you remember that of that of that trip? Yeah, I, I remember us jumping around a bunch of Alameda Naval Air Station. Remember that where we actually flew out of? Well, we, uh, yeah, we eventually got there. We had to go through Whidbey Island and Buckley. Yeah. And Whidbey Island. yeah. And we, I remember we flew, we flew up in the nose of, of a P3, didn't we? Or It was a P2. P2, P2. I had the big glass note. Uh, the, they, called it, they called it the bow. Remember bow? The bow, yeah. We got up there in the bow and set up there. That's the first time I remember doing that, or only time I remember doing that. Well, yeah, not a P3 I've... doesn't have that. A P2 does, yeah. And, and I remember them telling us to look for traffic, and I... I didn't understand what they meant when they said traffic. I, I think <laughs> I think you guys probably knew, but I was looking down at the road going, there's cars on the road. What are we talking about? <laughs> what does traffic on, this, on the highway down here have to do with what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was pretty entertaining. Yeah, we, uh, just for those that don't 
haven't heard the Kai Webb interview yet. That uh, uh, we had to we had to jet, jet, Matt jettison himself from our merry adventure in Alameda and went back home because uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. But we did we made it though. We had we had wasted three three or four days of a of a ten day vacation trying to get to Hawaii. We just couldn't get there. <laughs> the free, we probably could have just bought a ticket for cheaper than doing all that we did. But but it wasn't as memorable, right? It was. It was. It was. It was unforgettable. I I tell those, those stories to my my family even now. My kids remember better than I do. Um. Uh, Jimmy mentioned something. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he mentioned that you got to lead us in the Firsty Parade. Do you remember that? The Firsty Parade. Well, I think I don't know about the Firsty. The uh, the graduation parade. Is that what you're yeah, talking about? yeah, yeah. I did because uh, being Jimmy, he somehow he was able to do two good things at once. Uh, <laughs> he. Uh, he got to parachute into the parade, so he always wanted to do that, and he allowed his friend to lead the squadron, which was, you know, it was neat for me because my parents were there and saw all of it, and yeah. I'm getting to lead the squadron, and he could easily have done that himself. He was the squadron commander. I wasn't, but he wanted to jump jump into the parade and uh, parachute into it. He's just a he always has been just a magnificent friend. I, I haven't been able to maintain contact with him as I had, but my old roomie, he, uh, that was the gift that he gave to me that kind of was the cherry on top of graduating from the Air Force Academy. He got to jump into the parade, and I got to lead the squadron, and it was one of the most humbling experiences I've ever done, walking in front of a, a mass of people that I would die for and, uh, and to walk by and salute the, the crowd and my family and the commandant and the superintendent and everything, but to know that we were all kind of doing it together and uh, we had done it together and uh, we had made some sacrifices. We'd made some people proud. We had disappointed some people along the way, but we were, but we had achieved what we, we thought was a pretty great goal. Um, well, I think it was just pretty cool that it was our last parade. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I think we were just excited. Hey, when this blew, I'm going to throw my hat up after this parade. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be over soon. <laughs> uh, no more Sammies. <laughs> so, so in that in that vein, did you ever think of quitting? What was that? Did you ever think of quitting? Only about every day. So what made you, what, what, what was, what was the bottom line? What was your well, the uh, first year? I mean, the first year after, after that, it was, um, the first year it was, it was just hard because I was growing up so much and, uh, my, I'd essentially been raised by my mom. My dad had been gone most of the time. So I really didn't have the toughest, the toughness that I needed as much as I tried. I, I didn't get that map of the minefield like I was encouraging these new uh, incoming freshman to have. Um, I didn't really understand everything I was going into, so it took me a year to grow up. And, you, uh, you didn't like your new cadet first-class mother? <laughs> what was that? You didn't like the new first cadet first-class mother? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, they, we had this one guy from Brazil, Vargas, who was a Brazilian exchange officer. He, he thought it was his goal to make my life hell and i still remember that he's the only one i remember the whole first class i, I could have killed that guy in a minute probably if i 
and more evil, but uh, he hated me. I, I don't even know. I don't think he just did it for fun. He was just mean. He was yeah. just mean. And uh, I learned a lot from, I mean, in reality, we learn a lot of lessons. We, we learn most of them from the worst leaders. We don't learn them from the best leaders. Because like anything, we always think about what went wrong. We don't think about why what went right went right. Uh, so we think about, okay, I don't want to be like that guy. And yeah. there were a few things you pick up along the way. Okay, I'd like to be like that person. Uh, so that was helpful. I think that's a very important, very important point because we did get asked uh, by one of the cadets uh, recently, do we ever admire any great leaders that we've served with? And I, and I, I really struggled to come up with anybody that I was really impressed with, but more like you say, Nat, I was led by guys who I, I just wanted to make sure I avoided some of the mistakes that I saw them doing every day. And it was just pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, I have I have two that are pretty helpful in my life. Um, Rick Fitzhugh, Colonel Rick Fitzhugh was my ops group commander at, at uh, Fairchild Air Force Base. And then uh, General Walt Cross was a uh, Colonel Walt Cross was my wing commander at uh, Dover. And I served as an executive officer for him. And I learned to really love that man. And uh, he and his wife, Kay and and Rick and Shelley Fitzhugh, they were um, instrumental in my life, teaching me how to how to lead. Great. That's great. So, uh, did you do any third class, third lieutenant stuff that you remember? I went to uh, Spangdalem Air Force Base, uh, and uh, it was amazing. I, I went with um, another guy I'd served on uh, fourth group staff with later on, and uh, we uh, we went all over Europe. I remember we went to Amsterdam. We had one weekend. We wanted to just go as far as we could on the train and get back in time. I remember flying in the backseat of an F-4 and uh, not having any idea that an airplane had that much power. And that was an F-4. I mean, can you imagine now what it'd be like if I flew in the back of a, an F, F-15AE or something like that that had a backseater? I just never <laughs> had an opportunity to do anything like you did. Well, my, but, we didn't have afterburner, but yeah, no, I, that, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so it, it was... It didn't. It didn't sway me away from going into it. It just. Uh, I always wanted to fly airlift and fly around the world and see the world and do things like my dad had done. So that's kind of what I wanted to do, and that's what I did. Cool. So, any other any memories of the summer programs that stand out? Uh, of course, Jack's Valley. We'll you'll, we'll never forget Jack's Valley. Uh, all those <laughs> times you're just totally exhausted. Survival training was it was important the pow training i will never forget that that was uh, immersed in my mind getting inside that crate with snakes crawling around my legs i just never will forget that i was thankful i wasn't claustrophobic because i love getting inside the little box and everybody leaving me alone for a while <laughs> yeah. but, but uh I, little things became uh, hard you know when you when you try sitting on a was it a three-legged stool or a one-legged stool? It was, it was a one-legged stool with a yeah, bag on your head. <laughs> and it didn't seem like that was hard initially, but little things become hard after a while. I remember that that made an, uh, an impact on me, realizing that that was the case, that little things become hard like that over time. I, I can tell you there's one bad thing about leaving uh, the Air Force world and going into the Navy, and that is they make you go through Syria again. Oh, really? Yeah, I got to do it twice. Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> you, <it. laughs> yeah. you need to go 
going into the Navy serves you right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Touche. So we graduate. What happened? What where'd where'd you end up going after we graduated? Um I got a C one forty one to Charleston as my first choice. Well uh, hang on, hang on. Didn't you uh, go to UPT at Craig? I did, yes. Thank you. UP, UPT at Craig. Uh, we were, uh, the base shut down while we were there. So when we graduated, uh, there was no T-37s flying. It was only T-38s. And uh, the DO was the captain of the whole base because it was, uh, everything was winding down. Uh, I was far qualified and IP qualified and essentially the, uh, class commander, whoever, they flipped a coin between me and Wes Neely as to who was going to go back to be a, a T-37 IP. We both wanted to C-141 to Charleston, and we were both far and IP qualified, and he got it, and I got to go to Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I met my wife. Uh, I always thought it was because he had the better personality than he does, more likable than me, but uh, at any rate, he, he told me when he came to visit me here the other day, amazing how you stay connected with people. They came and uh, he said that the uh, his supervisor told him after he got there that they flipped a coin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I got 141 to Charleston, met my wife uh, about a year into being there. And we got married in, in uh, June of 1979. We've been married 42 years. Uh, we went from there. I got a non-volunteer assignment. I, I had an accident in the 141 there. I was had finished a local, and uh, the nose gear collapsed, and we skidded down to the end. The, the, we hustled out of the airplane. The plane blew up. And, wow. Uh, before I uh, could get back on flying status, I got a non-volunteer assignment to T-38 Columbus Air Force Base. And uh, – because Craig had closed early, I, I went straight to Charleston on uh, my lease. What do you call it? The, I forgot what they used to call that. Some kind of status where you're 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 awaiting your assignment, you're going to training. Okay. And I was a early on station at Charleston earlier than everybody else, so I was about six months there before anybody else showed up after training. So I got a non-volunteer to Columbus T-38s. Uh, closer to Nashville, my home, so that was nice. Then I went from there to Dover to fly C-5s, uh, flew there, uh, then went to Naval War College in Newport, or Naval Command and Staff College, and then uh, Pentagon after that, worked at XO, and then from there I went back to, I actually went to American Airlines interview <laughs> at the 16-year point because I was fed up with flying. And I thought, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. And I went to American Airlines interview, uh, got turned down, got a highly qualified non-selectee letter. But right before I got back, uh, right after I got back, and it uh, turns out I had not turned in my medical history before I went. And my parents had heart disease issues. So that now they can't do that, ask for that. But so I got turned down and then... Uh, Delta Airlines, who I was supposed to get an interview with, got turned down. They all started furloughing later that summer. So mm. thanks be to God, I didn't go. And then right as I got turned down from America, I got a call from uh, an old friend wanting to know if I wanted to go be the ops officer of the my old squadron at Dover Air Force Base. So I <laughs> well, absolutely. So I went back, flew C-5s for two more years, and then I went to uh, Fairchild Air Force Base. As the squadron commander there, flying an airplane I'd never flown before. 
and uh, so I was the least qualified guy in the in the squadron, but I was the commander. So what? How did how did how did you get a uh, up to speed on on the aircraft you'd never flown before? What what kind of what is that process like? Well, it's five five months at Castle Air Force Base. I mean, five months to learn how to fly a KC one thirty five. I thought that was ridiculous, but uh, sure, after about three months, you knew everything you needed to know. But the tanker community is very much in love with themselves, and uh, <laughs> uh, and I became in love with ourselves too. <laughs> but uh, so we, we did everything. We learned aerodynamics of a KC one thirty eight. Who cares? You pull back, the trees get smaller. You push forward, the trees get bigger. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> And so anyway, I, I, I showed up as the KC-135 squadron commander of the 96th Air Refueling Squadron. In the first year, John, every time I talked, the other four, there were four flying squadrons. The four flying, other four flying squadron commanders say, oh, Nat doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an airlift guy. Oh, goodness. So they just ignored me. You know, so they kept talking. So after the first year, we got selected the best squadron on base. The second year, I think maybe they're going to start listening to me. I start talking. Well, maybe they listen to for like about a 30 seconds. Ah, he's always talking. He's an airlift guy. <laughs> well, you're supposed to take turns, but the second year, we got the best squadron on base again. And that year, we got the best squadron west of the Mississippi. And in the third year, before I turned the squadron over to another, another guy, I would start talking and everybody would stop talking. <laughs> okay. And then I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. I was BSing like everybody else. <laughs> so then I learned out when I... <laughs> So when you find a little bit of success, you need to talk less. That's what I found out. There you go. That's a good talk lesson. When you talk less, listen to everybody, cherry pick all the great comments. And then when they said, now, what do you think? Then you're the smartest guy in the room. You walked into it the dumbest. <laughs> but if you talk last, you sound like you know more than everybody else. So, so then I learned to keep my mouth shut. So, so uh, after, after Fairchild, um, there's the interesting transition from uh, air force lieutenant colonel to something else what was what what went into all that process i uh i was a um i turned the squadron over to someone else and i was coming up to 20 years and we i was on a deployment in the in southwest asia and i called tracy back home and i said look i i think i'm ready to retire she agreed so I don't care. Let's be a Walmart breeder for all I care. Let's, I'm ready for something else. So I, I put an application into the, all the airlines. Uh, UPS was the only airline that called me. Uh, they called me for in for an interview. On the steps of the corner there at Little Air Force Base, and this young African American guy picked me up in a van and drove me to the hotel. So I talked with Ralph on the way there and Ralph told me all about it. he said morning. I said well I mean it's 10 30 yeah I'm gonna pick you up in the morning I do everything so he picked me up next morning there were 14 other guys hopped in the van we headed in we're all in our little shirts and ties and all like that and we sat down for an interview he came in and the guy Ralph came in and talked to the HR guys for a little bit and he uh when he went to the ladies and I'll pick you up this afternoon so what you guys, you know him? No, I don't know. I just rode in the front seat with him. We just talked about life. And so we go through the day. The next, At the end of the day, he comes in. We go out and get in the van. I hop in the front seat with him again. And he goes in and talks. You can see him in there laughing at us, talking to the HR guys. And so we get in, we drive, we, we talk about his kids and sports and all like that. And, and uh, 
he tells me about Louisville. I get out and he says, well, I'll see you in the morning. I said, well, I don't think so, Ralph. You have to be invited back the next day. And these other guys seem a whole lot sharper than I am. So we'll see. I'm the oldest one here and have the least flying hours. He said, oh, well, I'll see you in the morning. So I, next morning we show up. There's seven of us now. They had turned away eight of us. Wow. So now I'm only I'm one of seven. So I hop up in the front seat with him. He talks about his kids and talks about how he's going to, to Jefferson Community College. He says, man, you don't need to be doing driving a van the rest of your life. What are you going to be doing with your life? So, we get to talk. <laughs> so you, you seem way too sharp, Ralph. He said, well, I got some plans. I got plans. So we start talking about it. So he goes in again in the morning. We sat down and he said, I'll pick you up in the afternoon. That they said, you know, this guy, said, no, I don't know him. He just, he's a van driver. I'm just talking to him. So he leaves. So we come back and he comes back later, picks us up. He goes in and he, this time he's, he's slapping high five, slapping butt and everything with everybody in there. And they're having fun. They're laughing. Takes a little bit longer. We're all waiting in the van. I'm up in the front seat with him. We yak a little bit. He turns off at, an exit early and starts driving through neighborhoods. I said, Ralph, what are you doing? We need to get back to the hotel. And he said, well, I want to show you this. This is where my son plays ball. I said, Ralph, stop it. We need to go back. We're doing, if we get a call, we're, we're hired. You got to do the medical the next day. If we get a letter, then there's a highly qualified non-selectee. We all want to know. So, so we get out and he said, well, I'll see you in the morning. I said, I don't, I don't know about that. I kind of really doubt it. Well, turns out I did get called. I get hired get picked up for the physical the next morning. I'm the only one out of the 14 people that was hired. Wow. Two years later, I'm in the training. I'm a SIM instructor for 747 and uh, with UPS and, and a manager gets in there and he's talking uh, about interviews that he's doing. This guy comes in with tennis shoes and he said, man, I didn't, I didn't get any hired. Did he? he said, no, well, we finally asked him, why are you wearing tennis shoes? He said, well, he told us, you know, a very, understandable story how he left them at home after a, a problem with his kids that happened and, and I said well I, I guess that kept him from getting hired so actually it really highlighted him if, if he could if he could have handled his mistake it highlight we all remembered him but he kept looking down at his shoes every time we asked him a question he couldn't get over the fact that he had made a mistake so it really hurt him and I said well you guys do pretty good at hiring people and I but I mean, every now and then somebody slips through and I put my hands under my face. I said, but uh, I was the only one out of my 14, 14, 15 guys in my interview class that got hired. And he asked me a question that I'll never forget. He said, did you talk to the van driver? <laughs> I said, what? He said, you never get hired unless you talk to the van driver. I said, wow. if you talk to, he said, if you talk to the van driver, that doesn't mean you're going to get hired. But if you don't take the time to talk to the van driver, then obviously you're just focused on yourself. Yeah. And, and I said, wow. And I had, you know, I was just, didn't think I had a chance. So I'm talking to the guy, talking about his life, encouraging him, what he's going to do. And I, and I, it just really hit home with me. He said, did you talk to the van driver? And so, well, yeah, I think I'm the only one to talk to him. Nobody else sat up there with him. Well, I'm not, he said, I'm not saying that's why he got hired, but it, it had an impact. It was definitely a gate you, you crossed over. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's really that's really neat. I uh, but I, I spent twenty three more years flying with them, and I, I enjoyed every minute of it. It seemed not a lot shorter than my twenty years in the Air Force. I enjoyed that, I think, more. But uh, I got paid better in the UPS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, now you being a UPS pilot, where, did you go? You probably went everywhere. I did. I was a. Uh, 
I chose to fly international, uh, and I it kind of comes to a quick story, if I may tell it. Do we have yeah. time? Oh, yeah. Uh, I um, I just finished a round-the-world trip. Uh, we had by that by now I'd been I was based out of Anchorage, Alaska for about six years. So we bought a condo up there, and I, I didn't have time to come back to Louisville all the time. So I would stay there and come home back to Louisville whenever I could. Well, this time I'd finished a round-the-world flight. Uh, you know, Warsaw, Seoul, uh, Shanghai, Almaty, Kazakhstan. Just had really been all over there, and then came back to Anchorage. And I decided to go ahead and come back to Louisville. Instead of going to the condo and staying there by myself, I came home here. And so we had gone out to eat, and uh, I was eating takeout Chinese in my own great room right here. And uh, I passed out. My wife and I, we'd gotten in an argument. She'd gone back to the back. And so it's like, you know, 9 o'clock at night. I'm still like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Anchorage time. And she went, went to bed. And I passed out. And I thought, I must be allergic to MSG, but I found myself lying on the floor and uh, I stumbled, I wake up, I stumbled back to the back. Thankfully I got up. I'd have been dead on the great room floor the next morning. Yeah. She realizes that something's wrong. So we call 911. They come out an hour and a half later in a freak snowstorm on April the 1st. The EMT finally arrives. And uh, by now my vitals are fine. I was, I had a terrible headache. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I was dizzy still, but then all my vitals were fine. They said, look, everything seems to be fine. How about you set up for us? Well, I, I said, I don't think I can. Well, I set up and I started throwing up. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll say, we'll take you in. You must, we'll take you in for observation. Well, on the way in, they said, well, we'll take you in code five. And I said, what code five mean? I mean, no siren. I'm out paying for this ambulance. I want the full experience. Turn that sucker on. I want to hear it. <laughs> so I was laughing with them and, and I passed out again on the way in and I woke up on the being rolled into the emergency room and my friend had arrived tracy called him and i said well andy at least if i die i know i'm going to heaven i said andy did i really say that i must really believe <laughs> and uh so i got in there and the er doctor doing this normal triage he he came in an ambulance so he looked at me but all your vitals are fine he says i don't I mean, you got a headache that bothers me and about that time this neurosurgeon gets paged over the intercom at 1 at 1 a.m. in the morning. So Dr. Hodes comes down and takes a look at him and he says, let's do a CAT scan of his brain right now. I had a brain injury. I was about 30 minutes from dying when they decided to rush me into emergency brain surgery. Oh, wow. So I get in and they, uh, they do the surgery. It goes fine. But I wake up in ICU uh, for the first day of my four-week stay in ICU, paralyzed on my left side all the way down. And uh, I, uh, at the three and a half week point, and all during this three and a half weeks, I'm having these mini seizures, and they they call the family in, tell them he's not going to make it. And uh, if you want to see your dad alive, you probably need to come in now. So they're the family's flying in from around the country, and uh, at the three and a half week point, I finally get some movement in my hand and my leg, and so they let me go into a inpatient physical therapy so i stay in inpatient physical therapy for another four weeks so one day able to run four miles the next day in the hospital for eight weeks wow. and i uh, at about the six six week point i am a total jerk john i am my wife is coming about every second or third day because i'm just mean I'm, yeah. I'm mad at god i'm mad at everything why me lord 
and I'm in, doing this speech therapy session with a speech therapist. She's having me do Sudoku puzzles and all this kind of stuff. She was like brains working, and I'm like, man, I hate that stuff. So I said, is there any way I can get out of doing these Sudoku puzzles? This stuff's driving me crazy. I said, unless you're trying to get rid of my southern accent, I don't think I have a speech problem. Speech <laughs> that's all they do is speech. Well, they do cognitive thinking and all like that, too. And she says, okay, well, how about you write me a paragraph on your event? And I said, what do you mean my event? Being a jerk, you know. And she said, your medical event. And I said, well, I think people write books on this, not paragraphs, but I'll, okay. And he said, well, here's a pen. Here's a pencil in case you make mistakes. You know, I think I can make, I think I can write a paragraph without making a mistake. You know, five mistakes later, I finally finished the thing and I hand it back to her. And I'm thinking, I'm going to try to do something, write something serious because I want to get out of these stupid Sudoku puzzles. And she starts reading it. And, and normally about this time when I'm asked about this, I said, look, I'm not to offend anybody, but this is what I wrote. She uh, she starts reading it out loud. And I can tell that uh, why to start reading this out loud, because I wrote Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. I know that you love me because you came and died on the cross for me. Help me to live my life to honor you, even if you never heal me. And John, as I heard my own words read out loud, something clicked. And cool. I thought, grow up. Put your big boy pants on. It's not why me, Lord. It's why not me. I'm nothing special. I got, I got this. I got to, I got to do something. I came up with three rules that really helped me from that day forward. And I use them even to this day. And the first one is again, not to offend anyone, uh, but to trust in the Lord with all my heart. The second one is don't get overwhelmed by life. Just do the next thing. Well, and the third is to live my life. Remembering no one's unimportant. And I, that was on a Monday, the next Monday I show up at the physical therapy and this, the guy sits down, but, you know, I get into my wheelchair by myself. I get down there by myself. You know, they have to show you're independent. And he says, so I, I, he sits down beside me, uh, this male physical therapist, occupational therapist. There weren't kind of, bothered. David, how's it going? He said, oh, not so good. I patient was supposed to work. I said, she was just kind of depressed and couldn't do it. And I said, well, it was hard for me in the beginning too. He said, yeah, well, you were a jerk. <laughs> said, well, don't hold back, Dave. Tell me, you, Jolanda used to come back about every other day crying. You've been so mean to her. And she said, but ever since last Monday, something's changed. What happened? And I told him kind of what happened. And I said, it just, I realized I just need to start, not get overwhelmed. I mean, I was, John, I thought I've lost my flying career. I'm not going to be able to take care of my family. I'm going to lose my house. I can't pay for my house, my car. I mean, everything was, but I finally just realized I just need to stop figure out what the next thing is to do and just work on that. Just do it as best I can and then move on. Just keep connecting the dots. And uh, two years later, I got my pilot certificate back and I started flying again. I flew internationally for UPS for seven more years. But that meant I had to, I had to get out in front of my yard here. And you saw these hills on this neighborhood. I had yeah. to walk this neighborhood learning how to walk again. I mean, literally learning how to walk again and then learning how to run and then sending my tapes to the to my FAA intermediary guy for the the union intermediary guy, and he they helped me get my certificate back, and it was it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was easy, and that all I really had to do was to do the next thing, yep. and just and connect I, the dots. And and just to roll it back a little bit, I think you learned some of that when you told us you were uh, heading for conduct probation and 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 some academic stuff. That's uh, 
you, you just go back to that early, some of that early uh, stress that you adapted into uh, f- figuring out the uh, situational awareness and doing the thing that keeps you going in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction. Exactly. You just, and you, you learn from other people, you get support, you know, in the 36 squad there, we just really, we rallied around each other when folks were getting in academic trouble, we would, we'd help them when they get in conduct stuff, we would help them just work, work with them. And, um, you know, it was hard and, you know, failing is not falling, falling three times. You get up three, you just, that's research. (laughs) There you go. That's that's, you fall three times. You get up two. that's failing. You got to just keep getting up. And, uh, well, I, I think what you've done since your flying career ended and, and the, the path you have chosen is, and has been chosen for you is fantastic. I'm very, very proud to know you and very happy for what you're doing now as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, other op- avenues or other options you could have taken. Well, I just try to go and I just try to go. I have to go to I've been to China, to uh, India, Nepal. Ukraine, UAE, Kazakhstan, all those places don't know me. So if they knew me, they wouldn't want to listen to me. <laughs> but since, since they don't know me and I have a handout and I'm an American, they think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> can, can we get you to go to Florida and Texas? <laughs> Amen. Let's do it. <laughs> right. I can well, use Nat, that for excuse anytime. Well, Nat, I, I loved uh, hearing your story and I think the crowd's going to enjoy this. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, John. You're you're a magnificent human human being. You really are. And uh, well, now hang no, on. Let's, let's not get too deep here. We got to. We, we don't want to lie on these things. Oh, this isn't recorded, is it? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> really. <laughs>